house of mercy. John chapter 5 this morning. I will do my best so that the words path and principle do not come out of my mouth. For seven weeks I've been preaching on the path principle. This morning we're looking at a standalone message. House of Mercy, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Would you please follow with me in your Bibles? Verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, that whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time he said to him do you want to be made well the sick man answered him sir I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. What a great story. Would you all agree with that? I mean, I think that deep down in our hearts, we all have a certain love for the rags to riches story. We love to watch them on TV. We love to read about them, um, especially in the scripture. And I'm thankful that we worship and serve a God who specializes in the rags to riches stories. Amen. He uh, he takes us from our dirty, filthy rags, cleans us up, calls his his own and gives us all of heaven's riches through our relationship with Him. We literally are, every one of us who is called on the name of Christ as Savior, each one of us is truly a rags-to-riches story. But I want to take a moment and, and kind of unpack a little bit of this stuff because there is some, some strange stuff going on in this Scripture. Um, there, in the story, there's some things that we may not really be familiar with, and the angels stirring the water and the, the healings coming from that, and it sounds a little strange. And I want to kind of give you some of, the, some of the philosophies or beliefs among some about how they try to explain what happens in John chapter 5. As the Bible tells us, there is a pool and it's called Bethesda um, in the Hebrew. And that pool is an interesting pool because it has five porches. There are obviously some kind of roofs around it. 
Um, and in that, around that pool, there lay all kinds of sick folk, those that are lame, uh, those that are blind, those that may be demon-possessed at the time. Um, we don't really know. We just know that there's a variety of people who are sick and afflicted who are laying around the pool because they know. The Bible tells us that at a certain time, we don't know how often, we don't know if it was a regular time, we don't know if it happened at a certain time every day, every week, every month, every year, we don't know. But what the Bible says is that an angel would go down to the water and stir the water up. And the first person that was in the water after it was stirred by the angel was healed no matter what disease he had. Now that's interesting. And some in the, some in the uh, secular world will try to tell you, well, that's easy to explain. It had nothing to do with an angel. had nothing to do with this celestial body coming down and stirring water. It had everything to do with the fact that this pool, they say, is spring-fed. And because that pool is spring-fed, there undoubtedly are minerals that are locked up in that spring, and the stirring of the water that they said was an angel is really just some of those minerals breaking free from down in the spring, and then it would release those minerals out into the water, and whoever was sick would get in and it would heal them. But that doesn't line up with the Scriptures. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I do believe that there are certain minerals that are good for our bodies. I I don't doubt that there are certain minerals and certain baths and certain waters that are good for us. I'm not denying that. But there's no way to be able to explain that it was indeed uh, minerals breaking loose that would go into the water, cause it to stir, that would heal them of whatever manner of disease they had because the Scripture says it didn't matter what you had. John says it doesn't matter if you're blind, it doesn't matter if you're lame, it doesn't matter if you, if you can't speak, it doesn't matter if you can't hear, it doesn't matter if you have leprosy, it doesn't matter. Whatever you have will be healed. I don't know of a mineral that will heal you no matter what disease you have. The person that finds that mineral is going to be a very, very rich person, wouldn't you agree? You know what? I believe it is exactly as John said it was. I believe it was indeed an angel that came down and stirred the waters. And I believe it was exactly as John said that the first person that dove into that water was healed no matter what manner of disease they had. Now let me, let me say this. Even though some of you may say, yeah, pastor, that's still kind of strange. We still worship a God that does strange things, by the way. But let's look at it in the parts. In understanding the whole, let's look at the various parts that make this story up and that seem to be a little strange to us. First is that there's an angel that would come down and stir the waters. We're familiar with angels, aren't we? I mean, they've showed up in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Angels appeared to Abraham. Angels ministered to Jesus. Angels announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Angels were there to tell uh, the, the, the couple that they were going to give birth. I mean, the angels are all throughout the Scriptures. They do the work that God tells them to do. They are messengers and servants of the Most High God. And he used them periodically, Old Testament and New Testament, to do his bidding. And it doesn't seem so odd to me that God, in his mercy, would use an angel and say, go down there and stir the water and let the first one in there be healed. doesn't seem odd at all. It seems as though God is expressing his love and his mercy, a reminder to the people at that point that God is still working during the silent years. And you know what? If you think about the Bible, it's not so odd that God would change water. Jesus turned water into wine, didn't he? 
Do you remember when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt? And it was pretty early on in their journey. And they became very thirsty walking through that wilderness. And something happened. Do you remember that they were all crying about how thirsty they were? And they come up on this big body of water. And they go over and they start drinking the water. And it was bitter. So bitter, the book of Exodus said, that it started making people sick. So Moses turns to God and he says, what do I do now, God? Do you remember what God's answer was? That there's a tree over there, Moses. Do you see it? Yeah. Cut that tree down, throw it in the water, and the bitter water will be made sweet. So Moses did exactly as God had commanded through the tree and the water. The bitter water was made sweet. The people were were taken care of. The people were given good water. When we start to look at this story in the parts and see how the parts make sense, see how the parts line up with other instances in Scripture, the whole doesn't seem to be so strange now. I believe that it is indeed, as John said it was. There was a pool. God demonstrated His mercy by sending His angel down into the water to, to, to stir up the water. When that water was stirred up, everybody around there knew it. The first one into the water was healed, no matter what manner of disease he had. It was not a scientific miracle. It was a divine miracle of God amen are we all awake if not my cough will help (coughs) I was at revival and their microphone was different and instead of turning this way to cough I coughed like this I just about made everybody deaf just about at least those that could hear me those that cared to hear me Let's look for a moment. The reason I I titled this message House of Mercy is because many believe, even though Bethesda is a very difficult word to translate, many believe that that the translation reads this, House of Mercy. House of Mercy. Some say House of Grace, but a majority of them believe that the, the literal rendering of the Bethesda means House of Mercy. So here we have, if you can imagine, all of these sick folk laying around this pool at the House of Mercy. And there's one man there who becomes the star of the show outside of Jesus in these 15 verses. We don't know his name. There's a lot that we don't know about him. But what the Bible does say about this man are several things. First, there was a man who needed mercy. He had this infirmity for 38 years. Now, we don't know exactly what the infirmity is, but we can get an idea that he had something to, it had something to do with his legs, that he was quite possibly paralyzed and couldn't walk because Jesus' healing, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Thank you. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Will this heal me of whatever manner of disease I have? I think it did. <clears throat> Thank you, Jose. So this man is laying there. And he's unable to get into the water. And he's had this infirmity for 38 years. Guys, I am 36 years old. This man was paralyzed or had this infirmity for longer than I've been alive. I can't imagine that. Now, we don't know how long he sat around the side of the pool. We can assume it was 38 years. It may have been shorter, but it definitely wasn't longer. And here is this man who is unable to walk. And for 38 years, having this infirmity, let's say for a moment, Let's pretend for a moment that this man was not laying at the pool for 38 years. Let's use a more workable number. Let's say five years. Let's say for five years this man sat at the side of the pool knowing that when an angel stirred the water, the first person in was healed. Do you remember what his story said? Do you remember what he told Jesus? He said, right when I'm about to get down into the water, 
someone jumps in before me. Now folks, we don't know how long, how often these angels stirred the waters. But even if it was five years, can you imagine the great despair of being so close to your new life? I mean, this is literally a new life opportunity for this man. All he has in his mind that entire time is I've got to be the first one in the water because when I'm the first one in the water, I can leave, I can get out of here, I can walk on my legs, I can be healed. No doubt this man's disappointment of being second or third or 30th or 60th or 100th in place was only compounded every time he missed the pool first and saw someone else get out and rejoice and give glory to God. Jesus comes to this man. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 6. Those precious words in red. Do you want to be made well? Well, duh. Right? You know what Jesus was actually saying? In the original language, Jesus was saying something much stronger than do you want to be made well. Jesus was saying this. Do you have a will? Do you have a will? You know what this tells me about this man? Guys, he had had this for 38 years, had become second, third, hundredth in place of getting healing. His, his disappointment is only compounded because others get in before him. And I believe, folks, when Jesus walked down to the pool of Bethesda and looked on that man's miserable estate, he said, do you have a will? Because I believe that man was barely clinging to the knot at the end of the rope. I believe this man was just about to the point where he couldn't wait any longer. Disappointment, dissatisfaction, being saddened, being discouraged, being all of those diswords, if you will, laying there constantly, never able to make it into the water. And now Jesus comes to him, I believe, at just the right moment, just when he's about to give up hope, just when he might even possibly have just chosen to roll off into the pool and let himself try to swim. I believe that Jesus came to him at the very moment he needed it the most. The lame man needed mercy. What a sad state. Friends, can I tell you something? This is not just a story 2,000 years ago of a lame man who was obviously time after time disappointed and discouraged and disheartened. I believe that this lame man represents some people in our lives. Some people on our block. Some people... They may share a place with us in our place of employment. They may not talk about it. They may not be as visible as this man, but I believe there are people out there who are hoping for something better, who are hoping for a new life, who are hoping for something to change, and they keep trying and trying and trying only to be disappointed and to never see it come to pass. They're looking everywhere but Jesus. First, the lame man needed mercy. Second, many others number two many others rejected mercy many others rejected mercy now hold on with me here when i say there are many others think about that scene all we have in these 15 verses are several groups of people there are the sick there are the healed there are the religious leaders or the pharisees and then there's jesus 
Let's look at each one of these people and see how they rejected mercy in helping this man who needed it oh so much. First of the religious leaders. If you look over in chapter 5, look over at verse number 9. Immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. They're not rejoicing that this man who had been lame for 38 years is healed. You see, what they did there was they had something called the tradition of the elders. They would take the commandments of God and believe that God was not clear enough in His commandments, so they needed to be more clear and communicate exactly what God's heart was. In the tradition of the elders, let's just use the example of work on the Sabbath. They had 39 traditions, 39 rules that were sub-rules of, you shall not work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Of those 39 traditions, carrying your bed on the Sabbath was number 39. Let me put this in context. They pulled him over for going one mile over the speed limit. Y'all know, know what I'm talking about, right? The religious police at that time setting up their speed trap outside of the pool of Bethesda see this man who no doubt is rejoicing. 38 years are behind him. He now has a brand new life using brand new legs. It's a miracle of God. He's walking away. Somebody just healed him. He is rejoicing, no doubt, and glorifying God. And these men stop him and say, wait, you are in violation. Your spiritual blinker is out. You are in violation. Your horn does not work. Rather than rejoicing that this man's driving an absolutely new car, they cannot look past the fact that he is carrying his bed. They were way too critical to praise. You know, sometimes we might do that. Be so critical of others that we fail to recognize the good that God is doing. Do you believe this might be an instance where they were straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel because I believe that was the case. They were catching on these little bitty nuances. By the way, if this was a violation of the law, Jesus wouldn't have done it. There is no way this was a violation of the law because Jesus did it. He never violated the law. He was never a sinner, never sinned. So we can say that in his action, it was completely justified by the Father of heaven. That's a promise. These men were in violation. The religious leaders rejected mercy. No doubt they had to have seen this man at some point being there for having this infirmity for 38 years, but rather than rejoicing, they chose to be critical. Now notice verse 7. To me, verse 7 could be one of the more sad statements in all of Scripture. Outside of our previous message on the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in hell. And I have underlined in my Bible these words, Sir, I have no man. Sir, I have no man. See, when Jesus comes to him and says, Do you want to be made well? Do you have a will to be made well? This man turns to Jesus and says, I don't have anybody. Who is the anybody? He's saying, I don't have any friends that are going to help me down into the water. There is nobody, this man says, that cares about me. Now let me put this in context for you. In the book of Acts, do you remember that there was a man who was born lame? This man 
was carried daily to the gate called Beautiful, and he was laid at the gate called Beautiful in the book of Acts, and they laid him there for the purpose that when those passed by to go into the temple, they would see this man in his miserable estate, and they would throw him a few coins. The man in the book of Acts said that his friends carried him there daily. You may remember another lame man who didn't have one friend. Didn't have two, didn't have three, he had four. And you know those four friends cared so much about their lame friend that when they heard that Jesus was near, they took him on his bed and carried him to the place where Jesus was. Those men cared so much about their lame friend that when they couldn't get into the house because there were so many people there, what did they do? They were not going to be denied. They loved their friend. They cared for their friend. And they knew that there was a chance that he could be healed. So they climb up on the roof of the house, break through the roof, and drop their friend right down in front of Jesus. That man was healed. That man had four friends. The man in the, at the gate called Beautiful had at least one friend who carried him there every day. And this man, this poor man, laid there and said, I don't have anyone. No one cares enough to help me get in the pool. Do you think there's anyone around us that says, sir, I have no man? Nobody to help me? Nobody to show compassion on me? Nobody to love me, nobody that's concerned with what's going on in my life, nobody who's going to help me through this situation. It is my prayer that nobody that is around us as children of light would ever say in their heart, sir, I have no man. Very miserable, sad condition. Let me share with you another group. Wouldn't it have been awesome? I love this segment of, of the sermon, of sermons where I get to say, wouldn't it be awesome if? Wouldn't it have been great, guys, if we would have read in the Scripture that this man laying by the poolside and the water was stirred and another one of the sick folk said, wait a second, hold up, guys. I know the water is being stirred, but this man has had this infirmity for 38 years. Wouldn't it have been awesome had someone else had risen up and said, wait, everybody, get back away from the pool. Let's let this man hop into the pool now because he's had this for 38 years. He may have very easily been sitting here for 38 years. He's been here longer than I've been here, longer than all the rest of you. He gets so close. Let's not let him get second again. Let's let him in. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Guys, let me remind you, mercy is not a New Testament concept. Mercy is something that God initiated, demonstrated, showed us how to do it, and expects us to do all throughout, the, all throughout every page of the Bible. It's not a New Testament term. I would have loved to have read that, but no, nobody did. You know why? They were all concerned about getting in there themselves. They were worried about number one. They were worried about themselves. And I would venture to say that that may be one of the reasons why we don't take time out, why we don't carve out some time to minister or to, to, to help to, to show mercy to some of those folks around us that we know need help, who know need mercy, who know need salvation, because you know what? We're too busy. You know, there's one more group that's probably the saddest. You may say to me, Pastor, you don't understand. 
you've never been in a situation where you were in a miserable estate for years. And you're right, I don't. You may say, Pastor, you, you, can't, you can't put yourself in that position at the pool. Because you'd probably say in your heart, Pastor, if that was you, you probably wouldn't have risen up. You probably would have kept one eye on the water. And the first time it moved, you would have been throwing elbows to get in there too. And you know what? You may be right. Maybe I overstepped my bounds by suggesting that someone should have shown mercy on this poor, miserable estate of a man. Maybe you're right. Maybe that would have been me diving in there first. And maybe in your own heart, maybe that would have been you too. I'm not worried about anybody else. I just want to be sure that I'm in there first. But let me tell you, there's one group of people that have absolutely no excuse. Absolutely no excuse. If, those, if I overstepped my boundaries and said that those people... I was, I was wrong for suggesting that someone who was sick would let this man go first. Let me ask you this. Where were those people once they were healed? Where were they? Man, wouldn't that have been awesome? Oh, I mean, amazing. Had somebody who was just healed dove in first, used his new life, used his new legs, used his new vision to crawl up out of the pool, pull up a mat, and sit right down beside this next man and say, don't worry about it, buddy. I got you next time. Wouldn't that have been awesome? It didn't happen. This man says to Jesus, there is nobody who cares about me. No one. The healed get up and go and celebrate their new life. The other sick folk, they're just watching out for number one. The religious leaders, they're not going to do anything. They're too judgmental and critical. They're not going to come down here where the sick folk are. They're going to stay over there, away on the corners, praying and worshiping and fasting so that everybody sees how holy and righteous they are. They're just going to leave us here. Sir, I have no man. I hope those words... Find an open heart this morning. Here's the good news, folks. Point number three. Jesus showed mercy. Jesus did what the religious leaders didn't. He did what the other healed people wouldn't. He did what this man's friends wouldn't. Jesus stepped in and by way of contrast revealed to us something. Guys, you know what's awesome about this story? You don't find this very often at all. This is a rare moment in the Scriptures. This is one of the few moments where Jesus acts in somebody's life without an invitation. This man is not here crying, Jesus, save me. He doesn't even know who he is. This man's not like the ten lepers who see Jesus afar off and say, Lord, have mercy on us. This is not Bartimaeus sitting by the highway side. When he hears that it's Jesus passing by, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is not one of those moments where Jesus is answering a call of faith. This is not a moment where Jesus responded to somebody else. This is where Jesus is motivated exclusively by his own compassion. In Luke 7, another instance, there was a woman who who was a widow. And the only person she had in her life was her son. And her son died. 
And in Luke 7, this widow is walking in this procession and they're carrying the tomb or the, 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 the casket of her son. Everything this woman loved and everything this woman cared about was right there in that box being carried to its final resting place. And Jesus walked by that procession, went over in front of the casket and commanded them to stop, touched the casket, raised the widow's son to life, brought him out of the casket and handed him to his mother. These are precious moments where Jesus is motivated by compassion. What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells me that I am so incredibly thankful that I have a God who is sovereign and can work in my life whether I give him permission or not. Amen? If he sees something that I need, you know what? He's sovereign. He created me. He can interfere with my life anytime he wants. There are certain things that we must respond to by faith, but you know there are those other moments where God throws out blessings, where God impacts our life, where God gets right in the middle of who we are, and you know what? We didn't ask, but he was motivated by compassion and love for us. He knew what we needed, and here he is out here amidst all these sick folk. He finds this man understanding, knowing that he had already been sick. Jesus didn't have to hear his testimony. He knew his testimony, and Jesus walks over and heals this man, we serve a God that still works miracles. We serve a God that is still evident, still motivated by compassion. This man's life, folks, was radically changed. Now, you know, some of you this morning may say to me, Pastor, you just ridiculed me for thinking that, that the healed people should go back and help the sick folk. So we should supply, we should provide that same logic to this man, that he should have turned around and gone back and helped the sick folk. For those of you that think that, let me show you. Look at verse 14 and 15. I want you to see what this man is next seen as doing. Verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Where was he? Everybody say it. You know where he's going? He's going to church. This man is using his new legs. Using his new life to do what? He's going first into the temple to give glory and praise and sacrifice and offering to the God who healed him. He didn't even know it was Jesus. He knew it was divine. He knew it was of God. So he's using his new legs and the first place we find him is in the temple. And what do you know? Jesus finds him there. You know the second thing we find this man doing? Verse 15. He told the Jews that it was Jesus. After he finds out, oh, you're Jesus, you're the one that healed me? You know what he does? He goes out and tells other people that it was Jesus. Friends, let me tell you, for this man, there was no need to go back to the pool to save the people. <laughs> he was introducing them to the healer by his mouth. He realized my faith doesn't, ha their faith doesn't have to be in the pool. Their faith can be truly in the only Son of God. You know, in Isaiah... Chapter 49, there's an awesome verse. And Jesus went back to his hometown in Nazareth. And you may know the story. The people in Nazareth had a hard time believing that he was who he said he was because he grew up there. No prophet is without honor except in his hometown. 
And Jesus went into the synagogue, as his custom was, the Bible tells us, and it was his time to read. So he opens up the scriptures, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 49. And Jesus says, quotes out of Isaiah chapter 49, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He then closed the book, turned to the people, and said, Today, today, these scriptures have been made alive to you. You know, Jesus shows us that he is a man of mercy. He shows us that he cares. And let me take a moment to say this. I don't know your situation. I don't know that maybe on the, on the exterior everything seems fine, but on the interior you're hollow. Maybe on the interior you feel disheartened. You're discouraged. And you feel as though you have nobody. Let me tell you that you do have at least one person who cares. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't need to hear his testimony. He knew his testimony. And today, let me tell you, the same Christ that made that lame man new, even though nobody else cared enough to stop or to help, the same Jesus that made that man new stands to make you new today. He's ready. He's willing. And he's able. Today, do you need encouragement? Do you need a new start? Do you need a new life? Do you need a new moment? Do you need something fresh in your life? If that's the case, you came to the right place because we worship a God who does all things new. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've never encountered Him in a very real and personal way, if you've never come to the foot of the cross and said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. If you've never done that, in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity after I pray. This morning, maybe you just need to rededicate. Maybe you're saying, Pastor, I know people all around me that are in need of mercy or in need of a word of truth or in need of a Savior, and I have neglected them. I've gone off with my life celebrating my new life. I've been saved so long I forgot what it's like to be lost. Today I'm going to sacrifice. Today I'm, I'm going to turn my life back and notice those sick and listen and turn my ear to the folks behind me that need hope. Maybe that's you this morning and that's a commitment on your part. Maybe you've never been baptized as a first step of obedience in the life of the believer. Maybe this morning you know this is the church that God has you to be a part of. and You want to talk about that. Whatever that decision is, I pray that today would be the day. Father in heaven, I praise you that this man did not cry for you. You did not respond to his call. You responded to his need. And Lord, I pray for those this morning that have needs in their heart. Lord, you promised us that you would provide for your children with our physical needs. We know, Lord, you are abundant in meeting our spiritual needs. Lord, there are those that have relational needs and emotional needs. 
And you, you are the one that is able to meet that through a relationship. And I pray today, Lord, that the Scriptures would be alive in our heart, that we, those of us that have trusted You, would be able to have this image in our mind, this picture, this face, or faces of those whom we've turned our back on, those that in our busyness and activity of life have left by the side of the pool. Pray that You'd break our hearts for them today. Father, thank You, and I pray that Your Spirit move in our midst bringing people, Lord, to a right relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.